0: Have you been to Tannis? I have been to Tannis, spelled with one N.
1: Is that one of the things you found growing up? It was like, I mean, I, my, my name's Oaks, so my name equivalent is something that I've always... I've had a sympathy for oak trees. And
0: yeah, I mean, I was interested in it. I mean, you know, my name is quite quite rare in Canada even, um, where I'm from. So to hear one's name in any kind of context piques the interest. Yeah. So, yes, it did. Uh, and my mum, I think, you know... in King Tut's Mask came on tour back in the 70s. Mm-hmm. So I grew up with that book, you know, the, the exhibition book from the sure. British Museum. So it was that, and then Indiana Jones and Tans. I thought, oh, what's this Egypt all about? And Maybe I should go check it out. So, yes, it's very interesting and different from snow and mountains in British Columbia rather sure. than, you know, desert of Egypt. So I was interested in the opposite.
2: In the depth of the forest and all over The pride of the greenwood there Oh, his branches the ivy her mantle threw when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh.
1: Hello, I'm David Oakes, and welcome to Trees a Crowd. This is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think our natural world is incredible. From spotters of owls to gardeners with trowels. I'm going to get to talk to people dedicated to or inspired by our natural world. In this episode, I've come to one of my favourite museums in London. Founded in 1828 by Robert Edmund Grant, the Grant Museum of Zoology, and to give it its full title, Comparative Anatomy, is a glorious gem of the macabre and the magnificent artefacts left by animals gone by. My favourite greets you as you arrive, the aptly named Jar of Moles. I'm here to meet the museum's curator, Tannis Davidson. She's worked on archaeological excavations in Cyprus and in Egyptian tombs. She's spent hours sorting through museum vaults worldwide. She's an anthropologist, fossil collector, occasional archaeologist. And if it wasn't her interest in architectural conservation, her CV reads like the female equivalent of Indiana Jones. So, Tannis, hello and welcome to Trees of Crowd.
0: Hi, David. Thanks for having me.
1: That's my very fruity introduction. Okay. You've got to live up to that now. So oh, best of luck. Okay. <laughs> What's your favourite exhibit in the exhibition? Let's start there,
2: in the um, collection, I should say.
0: Right. Well, we have about 68, seven, or 68,000 specimens in the Grant Museum. About 10,000 are on display. Um, I like the specimens that tell a story behind what they actually are Mm -hmm. so um, because the museum was originally set up as a teaching collection we don't have a lot of data about where they were collected or who collected them by Um, so in a lot of cases they are just sort of the raw kind of skeletal remains of the animal to use for teaching comparative anatomy purposes. Um, so you know, to the you know primate specialist, that might be particularly interesting, but mm-hmm. i I'm kind of more interested in history behind things, so um, I prefer the specimens that have kind of a tale or a story about them. One of my favorite specimens is a section of elephant tusk with a bullet hole or and a bullet actually encased within the section that's amazing um, yes it's a it 's a strange' is it a full
1: like elephant. Round like a yeah huge, so it's a,
0: it's a cut a, a slice from the tusk, uh-huh. and embedded in it with regrowth is a bullet um so i kind of i've looked into this uh specimen as much as I could through the records. I think it came into the collection about nineteen o one I did a little bit of a forensic c s i analysis <laughs> on the size of the bullet, and apparently it's a quite a rare. Gauge size, uh-huh. um, which corresponds to some of those large kind of elephant guns that were used With whole back sort of in the day, kind of
1: trumpet-like. Yeah, Indy.
0: yeah. So they weren't very fast, but they're quite powerful, sure. um, which would explain why it didn't shatter the tusk, uh-huh. and you know, it didn't kill the elephant because there's been some regrowth afterwards. So it kind of tells you know a story of a, a, a moment in time for this elephant who survived this, you know could have been fatal shot.
1: Can you work out the date of the bullet? Like, have you extra... Like, I mean, this is the thing. Like, you must... You're surrounded by so much here that you just want to sort of start delving into it.
0: Yeah, well, um, because of the size, I can't remember off offhand exactly what the gauge is, but it's a very particular size. It was used kind of around 1890 to 1905, sure. and it fits in with when it came into... Um, the Grant Museum, so we can kind of date the bullet um, by, by the size of it, and then kind of, you sure. know, create this picture of the size of the gun, and what would have been happening, and the types of, you know, unfortunately, hunting that was happening, game, big game hunting, background around that, that time period.
1: It's such a delight being here, and out of hours as well. Um, I'm, I'm, I can see behind you there's a couple of elephant skulls, to my right there's Is that a dugong? Yes, it is. That's a sort of manatee thing. There's a pangolin in there. There's... Is that an orangutan
0: skeleton? Uh, That one's a gorilla.
1: That's a gorilla. I I remember one of the first things I read about Grant at the the museum was the quagga. Yes. Which is, I think, arguably one of the rarest skeletons in the world.
0: It is. It's one of our star specimens here in the Grant Museum. Is that it up there? It's it's actually in the case right behind you. Uh, Okay. Um, But... Good on you for pointing out that one. So many years ago, we thought we had two zebra in the collection. Uh-huh. Um, and in the 70s, um, a specialist um, looked at our bones, and that one turned into a donkey. <laughs> um, and he, not quite uh, as rare. <laughs> not quite as rare. However, the other specimen turned out to be a quagga. So as far as we know, there's only seven quagga skeletons anywhere in the world, and I think that the one that we have is the only one with its skull okay. on it um, as well. So a few years ago, it was always missing one of the legs, um, and we uh, took it apart for conservation. It was sent away and remounted, and at that time, we uh, 3D or CAT scanned the opposite leg and reversed the data and 3D printed a replacement leg for it. So it's now on four legs, it's more stable, um, but it's, you know, a nice uh, way of... You know, telling the story yeah. of you know an old specimen with new technology, and working with uh, researchers to to come up with that. So it was when a,
1: you hear about tusks having bullets in and yeah. hidden quaggers and mislabeled donkeys, yes, it makes you wonder what other tales are yet to be discovered in this room.
0: Yes, well, that is the most enjoyable part of my work. Um, we have many stories of different types of specimens that have come into the collection. And, uh, you know, we're almost 200 years old now. And back 200 years ago or 100 years ago, records weren't kept in the same way that Mm -hmm. we do nowadays. So a lot of things came into the collection with little or no documentation. You know, a lot of my work is kind of piecing together kind of keys and codes of like numbering systems because we have several different systems here and you know cracking the code to figure out which comes first and what these numbers mean and do they correspond to this set of numbers so i really enjoy that and you know going through the old registers our first registers from 1890 um, again a different numbering system but uh-huh. trying to match up and that's the because they came from have. different private collections or um, no it just you know uh, the 1890 was it was a curator e ray lancaster um, who was who was here and he built the collection and produce this first register of museum specimens. Before, there were little lists that sure. were floating around, but he kind of made it more into a cohesive museum. Okay. Um, but somewhere along the line, that numbering system was changed. So the Lancaster records have a different numbering system. But the descriptions are such that you can. the you description can was carried as on, as well. so you can kind of yeah, figure out what they are.
1: Do you still get people giving you specimens today? Or are Um, your doors shut to new artefacts?
0: We're not shut. Uh, We do have people that show up with specimens that they found in their chimneys, for example. A few weeks ago, I had uh, um, someone come in with some remains that were apparently cleaned um, for identification. And um, she had expected that we would just take them in. But, you know, things like that. What was it? It was... Some bat bones, some bird bones. <laughs> Just it was, some bones. It was a little bit of both. Chimney bones, um, assorted chimney bones. They were blackened and um, not very nice to look at. Um, and there was no skull, and she was insisting, well, the skull is in there. And I'm like, well, there's, no, there's skull. no skull. I'm <laughs> sorry, I can't, I can't tell the you. The skull's
1: normally a fairly recognizable part of an it animal's is. anatomy. I,
0: I wonder if she, maybe when it was being cleaned, it was taken out of the the pot or whatnot, Um, but if we do um, acquire new things from time to time, our newest specimen is a taxidermy chicken that we commissioned um, for an exhibition we had a couple of years ago. Okay. Um, so chicken is, is quite a common animal. You don't often see it in museums either, you know, m- as a mounted skeleton or as a piece of taxidermy because mm-hmm. everyone knows what chickens look like. Um, but the exhibition was uh, the Museum of Ordinary Animals, the Boring Beast that Changed the World. So I it was the stories, yeah, about like mice, cats, dogs, chickens, these kind of animals and their, their role with science. So, we wanted to tell the the story of the chicken, and so we commissioned this uh, taxidermy chicken. Um, Now, so unlike specimens of the days of old coming into the collection, this one we have the full history. Um, It came from a chicken rescue farm in Brighton. We know the day that it died, it died of old age. Um, Did it have a name? It didn't have a name. It now it has a, a name, name called Chicarina, because oh. it's been <laughs> a lot of the animals here are, are nicknamed, but Chicarina, we know kind of her whole story um, and how she was made and the materials used. So it's kind of a nice way of talking about um, how specimens can come into the museum and also taxidermy, because this was a new ethical way of making taxidermy, whereas mm-hmm. most of the historical specimens we have that are taxidermy mm-hmm. are. Quite Perhaps. poisonous and not exactly realistic. They're
1: in formaldehyde and all that kind of stuff. Well,
0: they've got arsenics and heavy metals and okay. anti-pest kind of chemicals on them, so...
1: I, I guess my question... I, I want to talk more about you, but I want one more question about the museum. It wasn't open to the public until 96?
0: 97, yes.
1: 97? Yeah. Subsequently, I doubt you had to worry about things being full of arsenic because the students were there... By their own accord, there was less health and safety, I guess, in that regard. I guess now you're open to public, that is a real concern.
0: Yes. Um, I mean, there's, you know, everything ostensibly is, you know, it's, it's a handling collection. Um, but yes, we can't really have toxic things out for children's handling okay. specimens. Although I do have pictures of my young son holding uh, such specimens back when he was a baby. But, you know, it's, it's, a, it's not a great risk, but, you know, we, we do have to care for our, our customers as well as our specimens.
1: I came here on a... It was like a sketching day. You could come along and draw a specimen of your choice. Um, it makes me wonder what I touched on that occasion that I may not have recovered from. Yeah, well,
0: you, you know, don't, don't worry about it too much. <laughs> it's, just, it's mainly, you know, they have been cleaned as much as they can be cleaned. Sure. But it's if, it's if, you know, some of the material kind of gets in the case and you're, you know, breathing it in constantly and you know, so it's things like naphthalene in the insect drawers that sure. we kind of have to clean out every now and then because it you know, over time that can have a health effect. Mainly to the curators and sure. the museum staff, not necessarily the public.
1: Did you learn to do that as part of your curating journey, your education?
0: Um well
1: Or do you employ specialists to come in with
0: we we do. I mean, everyone sort of chips in and does a little bit. We do have conservators here that work, um, you know, full time on topping up the specimens, or you know, if it's re-mounting uh, a skeletal, that's a kind of a specialized uh, conservation skill. Um, cleaning taxidermy, you know, there's various stages. You can do kind of light cleaning, but if it's a deep clean, it's best done by the conservator sure. in the lab with masks and fume covers and things okay. like that. So it's it's mainly about where you're doing it, and, you know, again, health and safety.
1: Amazing. So tell me a bit about yourself. Where did you grow up? Where's home?
0: Um, I grew up in British Columbia and Canada. Um, So my childhood was spent kind of in the mountains, near the Rocky Mountains, and I skied a lot and enjoyed the mountains and the oceans, and British Columbia is lovely. People always ask me, what are you doing over here in London? You know, for the first 15 years or so that I was here, I would say, "Oh no, London's great." It's a mm-hmm. you know city. It's completely opposite. But I do miss it, um, and I, I do miss being in the mountains and the big sky. And do you
1: get back often?
0: Um, I try to, and I do travel a lot around Europe. But um, yeah, at least once a year, um, get back to Canada.
1: I've only ever been once. We did. Um, uh, we got the Rocky Mountain train across to Calgary from Vancouver, and then drove all the way back through the Rockies. and
0: yeah, that's a good trip. That's I've, the one I recommend when people go to Canada. It
1: was stunning. I've never seen wildlife like it before. Yeah, we'd have to stop the drive because uh, black bears would just walk across the road. Yeah, I think I'd never seen a chipmunk before. I think within a day I was bored of chipmunks.
0: Yeah, it's it's amazing. And uh, mm. having a, a young son, um, you know, it's my duty as a parent to kind of show him, you know, his Canadian heritage. And so we've done that trip a couple of times and. You know, it's so rewarding. You know, you can see the the mountain goats, the you know the bighorn sheep, the, mm-hmm. the bears, as you're saying, the moose, um, and it's it's really you know very rewarding to go, and you know you're guaranteed to see animals. Um, but I think growing up, you know. You, you, you sort of think that's normal, mm-hmm. um, and then now it's only now when I go back I appreciate it for like wow this is really you know large you know wildlife spectacular yeah. situation here.
1: What um, were your earliest memories? Is there anything particular that rings a bell?
0: I always was interested in fossil hunting and being in the mountains and trying to find fossils. Of course the Rockies are new mountains, and um, however you can go up to the Burgess Shale area Mount Burgess where they've got some of the oldest fossils on earth. I always knew about this as a child. I always liked you know collecting rocks and stones on the beach or rocks and stones in the mountains. Um, So I was always kind of hunting for you know an an arrowhead or a fossil Mm. or things like that. Did your parents support this? Um, Yeah I I would say so. Um, You know it wasn't uh, you know anything that was I was too openly obsessive about Mm -hmm. um but you know i kept it in mind and i always like collecting things so i had little collections of other little things and little glass animals and small things so i have to say i I was definitely always a child that collected things so
1: curating was always in your past yeah i I think
0: so yeah yeah
1: so from potential arrowheads and glass knickknacks and fossils and shells and the like where did you go from there
0: well, um I wanted to I was kind of wanted to travel and you know, when people ask you as a kid, you know, what do you want to do with your life? And I, I do recall um, saying several times I wanted to be a photographer for National Geographic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of thought about it over time and I was interested in anthropology and archaeology as a kind of a route to travel and find out. Did you out know what anthropology things. was back then? Um I I did, um, again, beside the King Tut book in my mum's library there was, you know, the, the leaky book on the origins of man and that was, you know, something that I was interested in because it was, you know, kind of fossil remains, um, but of, of hominids and kind of figuring out like how we got here and it, again it was somewhere you know, it, this happened in Africa it was very exotic to, mm-hmm. you know somebody growing up in the mountains in BC um, so I, I was kind of, I knew what it was and I was kind of interested in it, um, but i you know, I always wanted to kind of see the world and I did, like, photography and photograph sure. the world. Um, so I, I, I studied anthropology at University of British Columbia because they didn't have an archaeology department. And uh, through that, there uh, had a kind of a conservation component with the course. So mm-hmm. we were able to work on museum specimens at the Museum of Anthropology in Vancouver. Um, and I really enjoyed that kind of practical, hands-on work. Um, you know I recall like cleaning metal kind of plates from things you know it wasn 't anything you know, no fossils really. Sure. But, you know, the hands-on kind of practical element of doing something and cleaning objects and being around objects and being introduced to museums in that way, I think, really influenced me.
1: Did they give you placements? Did they allow you to travel whilst you were doing that degree? Um,
0: No, it was kind of part of the degree. Again, it was undergraduate, so you don't get much at that level. But, um, you know, there were um, several opportunities um, to kind of get part-time, voluntary roles afterwards, Mm -hmm. after the course, um, which I did and enjoyed. And then... Um, this was sort of the birth of the internet and you could look online for archaeological opportunities, fieldwork opportunities. So do you, do you think
1: that I mean this do you think the internet has stopped people being as inquisitive in like hands-on terms?
0: Um I don't know. I mean I I think about, you know, if I'd had the resources of the internet back when I was that age or just kind of going through university, you know, to Be able to find out what is out there, I think, is a great benefit. Um, You know, back when I was about to enter university, you had to send off for a paper hard copy of Mm -hmm. the university and look at your courses that way and not really know anything about the wider context of it all or what you could do with it. um, So I think it's a lot easier for people to pursue or even to figure out what it is they're interested in through the Internet. But you don't necessarily
1: have those accidental discoveries that you might... Like, if you come to this museum and just wander around, so you come to look at a quagga, you might leave with an elephant tusk. Whereas on the Internet, you very specifically go in one direction...
0: I suppose so. I mean, the argument might be that, you know, you might not find out about the Grant Museum unless you looked online or, you know, some museum list or whatever. I mean, it's a great tool. Um, It's not the be-all, end-all. And, you know, there's no comparison to actually traveling or or doing something practically or, you know, looking at it online. It's
1: probably a good time to mention that your entire collection, I believe, is online. Well, um, the vast majority of it? Not
0: quite. Uh, you yeah, know, hopefully, it. hopefully off, off <laughs> in my place. lifetime. No, we do have an online catalogue. Um, we have, are updating it at the moment, so it will look a lot better, I believe, in about six months. Not everything has been photographed, um, but everything that has been accessioned, so it's in our, our database, okay. will appear with some sort of information on the online catalogue, again, in a few months' time. Sure. Sure. Um, We've uh, just done a big data rehaul, you know, overhaul uh, with our, our database, so it's been migrated. So it's been kind of a year-long process of kind of getting information updated, um, and we're building a new online platform for it as well.
1: Fantastic! So after university, yeah. where do you travel to?
0: Well, um, as I was mentioning, this you know the internet and online you know fieldwork opportunities, and there was a. An opportunity to go um, to Egypt for to be an archaeologist. Um, so I, I know a lot of people have kind of done things like that, and um, quite I, a few
1: people, famous people. Quite a people. few
0: people. <laughs> well, it is interesting, isn't it? You know, it's like the <laughs> ultimate kind of gap year. Um, I
1: weirdly, I I mean, I was fascinated with Egypt at school, but I remember being in Vancouver, watching a family friend in a film about Howard Carter and Tutankhamun. It was presented on an IMAX screen at the cinema in Vancouver's Natural History Museum. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was that weird thing of being in Canada but being enthralled by Egypt still. So it's sort of a parallel journey.
0: Yeah, it's a a weird one. And there's not much um, Egyptomania visible on the streets of Vancouver. But, um, you know... Obviously, you know, as a child and going through the school system, you hear about Egypt and the hieroglyphs. And, you know, because it was such a rich and long civilization, there's a lot of stuff that you can kind of sink your teeth in. And with a name like
1: Tannis, obviously.
0: Yes, uh, yes, exactly. So Indiana Jones, the lost city of Tannis. It uh, piqued my interest from an early age, and it was kind of always in my head, like, what's what's that all about? I wonder what it looks like. Where Um, did your parents come up with the name? Well, it is a... It's a bit of a story. So, it is an Ojibwe Indian derivative name. So, Nutanis means my beloved daughter. Um, So, it means, you know, my name is Tanis. And so, if you come across a Tanis, they're likely to have Canadian roots Uh and um, have been born around certain decades, which I won't mention here today. (laughs) Um, But we're all about the same age and we're definitely Canadian. So,
1: what's a lovely name?
0: Thank you. Um, yes, so Lost City of Tanis, of course, it's only one N, um, you know, it, it was a, a phonetic, uh, you know, spelling or pronunciation of Janet, which was, you know, the Egyptian Janet, mm-hmm. and the Greeks heard it as Tanis, so that's how it became Tanis in, in Indiana Jones' films. Um, so yes, uh, I had this opportunity to go to Egypt, and um, working with Don Redford, who is a Probably the greatest living Egyptologist alive today, um, so it was a you know great opportunity. I could believe my luck. You know, I get to work with Don Redford. You know, again, I wasn't you know particularly going in the direction of Egyptology, but just you know on an archaeological site sure. somewhere exotic like Egypt, working with you know finding out what archaeology is all about. Um, so that was great, and you know working with the specimens, um, you know doing processing of finds, and again like photography and. I ended up working with this team for many years, um, as the site, you know, artist and photographer, and you know, just being there and it's, you know, the whole way of life, and you get to know the team and their kind of wider family that are international. It was, it was great experience.
1: Were most of you international? Were most of you Egyptian? Natives.
0: Um, well, we have the kind of Egyptian crew that was working there, but uh-huh. because it was always run as a field school, there would be students there and staff okay. from, you know, America or Canada generally. Um, so, yeah. It was
1: and were you spending time in tombs or...?
0: Yes, so a couple of the sites that we worked with, um, worked at, were in the Valley of the Nobles, which is kind of near Hatshepsut's temple on the West Bank in Luxor. Mm-hmm. Um, so before you get to the Valley of the Kings, so kind of going through these tombs, many of them have been were robbed out in antiquity. Sure. Um, and so kind of finding shafts and you know real archaeologists kind of stuff with the headlamp and like crawling, you know, through these tombs through the rubble and the rubble is you know all you know broken chips of mummy. Um, pottery stuff, you know, antiquities. So, you know, it's, it's very exciting stuff.
1: What was your most exciting find?
0: Um, I
1: say that knowing that most archaeologists don't really find anything.
0: Yeah, I mean, most of the, you know, because the, these tombs had been. Disturbed, you know, thousands of years ago, hundreds of years ago. It's all kind of bitty and rubbly, and there's been kind mm-hmm. of the tombs have fallen in on themselves. So going down deep underground and finding, mapping out areas that nobody has been into for ages is quite exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of being in a space that nobody has been in in ages, and you're the only one there is quite Um, A thrill, Mm -hmm. Um, you know. The various bits of mummy are quite exciting, even though they're disarticulated. There was a, you know, an intact mummified arm and hand that we found, which was quite fun for gags and (laughs) photography. Uh, There's a million shots of it, kind of, you know, creeping up against people as you do. Um, But you know, any kind of like text, of course, is the holy grail of archaeology and finding something that can help you. Shed context to the tomb that you're at. Um, One of the things that was quite exciting, you know, there were a couple of complete mummies that were found, um, but a little piece of ostraca with a a portrait of Akhenaten on it was, you know, lovely, you know, because there's very few portraits of him, Mm -hmm. the heretic king. um, And this was in a a tomb of one of his officials, so it was a kind of an interesting tomb because it was um, half kind of Amarna art and then half after Akhenaten fell out of favor. Um, So it's kind of interesting. It was a tomb of
1: Okay. Is there anything Egyptian here in in Grant? Um, I mean, you've got the the mummies of cats and things across the way at the British Museum. Yes.
0: Well, interesting enough, um, we have our earliest list of specimens here at the museum um, are two lists from 1850, and one of them is Grant's specimens, and the other ones are specimens that belong to UCL. Sure. They're bitty lists. They're not numbers. It's, It's things like, you know, for mounted skeletons, mammal, mm-hmm. so it's it's not very particular, um, but there is a note in it saying that the only human remains that were ever purchased for this museum were mummified remains from Egypt. Okay. So we don't have those in the collection anymore. Um, I assume that they maybe went over to the Petrie Museum. So this is kind of an, a new thing for me, and it's you know on you know the back burner of I have to like go through the Petrie find out like what bits maybe are ours. Um, the you know, Petrie
1: Museum is where, sorry? Um,
0: it, at UCL, so okay, that's the, the Petrie okay. Museum of Egyptian Archaeology. So presumably if the Grant Museum did have mummified human remains, Chances they probably are it went, over, went there. over there at some point. Um, but strictly speaking, they would belong to the Grant Museum. Um,
1: I mean, that's, that's the interesting thing with this museum, is it is of zoology and comparative anatomy. That's so right. the usefulness of having a human skeleton to be able to compare it to that of the gorilla to my right or to the... I think, is that an orangutan up there? Yes, it is. There's yeah. an orangutan, a chimpanzee. Oh, there is a human. Is that a real human?
0: It is a real human. It's, it's a real old but, human. But not
1: an Egyptian mummified.
0: No, and I don't know how much of an Egyptian mummy it is. It could just be some little bits and pieces. Or just an
1: arm that archaeologists
0: have been playing Yeah, with in you photograph. know, it was 1820s, 1850s. You know, perhaps somebody thought, okay, we'll, we'll get one of those in.
1: Just, I remember... Just because. I remember doing biology at school, and we had, a, we had a genuine human skeleton, like an old one that had come down, and I think someone discovered that they were quite expensive because most mm. skeletons for schools were always just plastic from then on in. Um, and as soon as someone, this rumour went around, I think fingers started to go missing off the skeleton. Right. Um, does anything ever go missing from here? I guess it's all pretty much locked up, I see.
0: Um, it is locked up. I mean, we have had a couple of things... Disappear from the collection, um, you know, not, not any time recently, but, you know, we do have handling days and, you know, outreach with, with kids. And, you know, that sometimes specimens have more than one piece and a little piece sure. is kind of sampled. We do have a long tradition of curators who have been and gone here and have taken some of the collection when they left. Okay. Um, their own personal collection, perhaps not. So there are lists of specimens that I can't find any trace of, and it's presumed that they Maybe went they, with, with the curator when they left.
1: I read somewhere that originally it was the head of zoology uh, of the zoology department at UCL was the curator of this museum. That's right, yeah. Are you the first person for whom that's not the case?
0: Um, no, it's been a few generations er, generation of curator, um, that haven't had the chair of zoology. Sure. Um, so I think back that changed back in the 50s, maybe? Um, so yes, now we're kind of you know more of a professional, the curator's scene is a museum professional rather than um, the chair of zoology.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was one of the first things you said to me was that uh, I'm not a zoologist. That's right. Do you, just being with this collection, make you want to go down that route more? like, Or do you, do you still very much want to... Should you leave here, want to be a curator and focus on that? What, like...
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's one of those things. I mean, people ask me, oh, what's your background? Are you a zoologist or are you a biologist? Um, I think, you know, on, on one hand, you do, you do pick up a lot over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've always worked with natural science collections. And um, while I don't have, the, you know, the formal training in biology or zoology, Um, I feel like I'm quite comfortable with what we have here and I certainly my knowledge of the collection is what I'm here for Mm -hmm. I think you know I do a lot of work with our database and you know identifying specimens and um, working with their taxonomies and understanding you know systematics and things like that so I have kind of gone about it in an awkward backdoor sort of way sure you know I I certainly wouldn't want to go head-to-head with a debate on a zoologist on a certain, you know, you know monitoring specialist, for example, uh-huh. um, people that, you know, devote their studies to kind of one group of animals. Um, so I would say I'm, I'm a solid generalist as far as zoology, but, you know, certainly caring for the specimens, you know, and again, these aren't live animals. No. Um, so I can kind of excuse myself for that because I, I care for them now that they're dead, which is a different <laughs> skill altogether. <laughs>
1: Um, so after Egypt, what yeah. happens next?
0: Um, after Egypt, so did that for a number of years. Also did fieldwork in Cyprus as well. Um, Southern
1: Cyprus, Northern Cyprus.
0: Uh, Southern Cyprus, okay. Greek Cyprus. Um, again, that was more archaeological. Not quite as exciting as Egypt and the tombs. Difficult to beat, kind of mummies in the tomb yeah. type situation, as you can imagine and then you know I moved to this country and what brought you here what brought me here uh, well my husband is um, he has a British passport because he was the child born in Canada his family's from Scotland originally so okay. when we left Canada um, we actually we moved to China and lived in Beijing for a period of time um, for his work he's an architect In China, I was unable to work just due to the visa restrictions. However, I spent my days kind of going to Pianjiawan dirt market in Beijing, and that's where you get the kind of tourist hat, the fake fossils, Uh the minerals, the real fossils, um, the antiquities. So I really enjoyed that time. The fossil
1: record of China is incredible.
0: It is, it is. Every,
1: Every sort of month you read a new article where they've discovered dinosaur with feathers or the first colored remains of a it's it's
0: it is yes you know it's a a huge country and there's you know certain pockets of like preservation Mm -hmm. um there that are just spectacular and it is true there was one last week about this kind of now you know equivalent to the burgess shale these early 500 million year old fossils so Mm -hmm. um it's very exciting to see the material that's coming out of china so you know being in beijing and you know Again, this was many years ago, and you know you get this kind of fossil trade and mineral trade, and it's you know it was useful to see you know because there's a lot of fakes out there and mm-hmm. how they would make fake fossils out of real bones um, or real fossils, so okay. adding adding kind of rib cages and adding. Um, you know, extending the animal, turning it into different species and things like that. It makes me
1: think of that mermaid that was made. Yeah, it's a modern version of that, yeah, Yeah,
0: the merman or the mermaid, yeah. So um, uh, there's one of those in Banff, actually, Okay. in the the Indian Trading Post, which is always kind of a creepy little thing to see if you're, next time you're in Banff, (laughs) go check it out. Um, Yeah, it's in a case, like in their little museum in the shop. Um, but yeah so it's you know there was kind of so i had I had things to do there. It was quite an interesting place, like in terms of like geology and mm-hmm. and and fossils. so when we came to this country um, and uh, my first job was at the Natural History Museum, um, again, despite all this kind of work in like archaeological field work and mm-hmm. all these kind of collections. You know, it's always the Natural Sciences Collection, which is great. You know, the NHM is a fabulous place to work. I was there yesterday. Yes. um, So I I worked there for a a number of years and um, doing various things kind of in the learning department. And at that time, we had something called Earth Lab. And it was before the kind of Angela Marmot Center where people can take in their specimens for identification. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was doing IDing of mineral and fossil material in the Earth Lab. Um, which was great and you know the the little um, you must
1: be learning so much on a day-to-day basis
0: you do I mean because obviously you're surrounded by you know the gallery and the collections yeah. and you know British rocks and minerals you know aren't weren't at that time entirely familiar to me so you get to kind of on the quiet moments tour around and you know spend time with these kind of specimens
1: one of the most interesting maps I looked at this year was of the makeup of the UK with the different Rock and uh, mineral build up. So, the, looking at the chalk line that went all the way across the the southeast of the country, seeing yeah. where the graphite ledge came in, and all of this kind of, it was amazing. And
0: yeah.
1: I mean, you you don't think of of geology in those terms, unless you're a geolo- geologist, I guess.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, and, you know, the the BGS um, was at the NHM at that time, and, you know, they had resources and all the books, so, you know, it was quite a, you know, a luxury to be in this sometimes quiet little gallery waiting for punters to show up and mm-hmm. um, kind of educate oneself on the material. So, yeah, it is interesting because people bring in, you know, inevitably, you know, here's some gold nuggets, fool's gold, pyrite, you know, it's sure. a meteorite, things like that. So you kind of get an, get an eye to see sort of what people are finding, what people think they are, um, what it is, what it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's quite interesting um, in that in that respect. So. I
1: always remember, I think at school we were putting chalk in vinegar
0: mm. um,
1: and then seeing all the little bones come out of it at the yeah. end. Yeah. I remember from that day onwards, I was always like, yes, there's fool's gold and there's quartz and there may be real sort of gems and real gold. But it was the sort of hidden stuff in normal-looking rocks. That's right. Yeah. And Growing up in in, in Perbeck as well, like you would have all, all the rocks that you could see the fossil remains and the little shell remains and everything, which is always beautiful.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, there was uh, some, a colleague I worked with at the NHM, who I still know, um, Adrian Rundle, and he studies microfossils, mm-hmm. and um, he's he's very engaged with like, you know Fossil Days and GeoFest and things like that, and um, educating kids actually about microfossils so you know taking sand or you know samples from the bottom of the ocean he you know has got this whole network and people send him these little samples and when you look at it under the microscope you know that's stunning you know perfect forms of the of the forums that are within the chalk it's just unbelievable is
1: you, you mentioned education and children there is that something that you and the grant museum are focused on now particularly
0: yes so i mean we try to educate everybody. But, um, you know, because we are part of UCL, um, the university, our kind of, you know, reason for being is to support the university. So we are only open in the afternoons, for example. So the morning is dedicated to um, higher education, university teaching, or Mm -hmm. school groups. So right now, at this time of year, we have a lot of school groups that come um, to the Grant Museum. But we do, in term one, for example, we Probably see close to 2,000 university students coming in here for practicals, using the collection sure. as part of their core modules.
1: I spoke to a woman called um, Dr. Jess French, who remembers coming here and being given a an artifact to identify. Yeah, yeah. Um, she mentioned she was she was furious that somebody got a, a a long mandible finger of a not a possum, but something I can't remember, and okay. she was furious that they got that because it was obvious from the get go. I think she had a, a femur of
0: Something, Something obscure, yeah, yeah. We uh, that's uh, one of our flagship object-based learning practicals. So we have a. Uh, it's for the third-year uh, biology mm-hmm. students, and it is a. It's called the mystery specimen practical. So at the beginning of the term, the class is given, you know, a mystery bit of bone, mm-hmm. with which they have the entire term to use the rest of the comparative collection to try to identify what it is. So we try to um, give them things that we don't know perhaps so Get much about. Get to do your research with yeah, unpaid internships. That's right. <laughs> Call it what you want. Um, but, you know, the, you know, to have somebody look at it intensively, and, you know, again, taxonomies change, and mm-hmm. the latest techniques for identifying things change, so we're getting kind of cutting-edge science to help identify at least a bit of the specimen. Sure. Um, so we do, we do an inverte- invertebrate one as well. It's a little... Uh, less intense because generally things are in jars and you can't you know look at them as close as the uh, the vertebrate ones but yes that's a very popular class
1: um so after the natural history museum
0: yeah so then i eventually uh decided to do a master's degree at ucl because of my time in egypt and spending a lot of time going in and out of cairo um i you know was interested in architecture and you know certainly working in the tombs you know that's architecture technically Mm -hmm. um so i decided to do um a msc degree here at ucl at the bartlett um it was it's called sustainable heritage so it's kind of conservation of architectural heritage or intangible heritage because i'd spent so much time again all through this time i'm working in museums i you know i didn't you know i wanted something different than museum work so um, this was kind of more about, you know, value of things and kind of those, you know, UNESCO type, you know, sustainable heritage and yeah. in that kind of realm. So during that course at UCL, it was actually I was introduced to the Grant Museum because we had a morning session in the Grant Museum, and I, I believe it was talking about
1: before it was in this location. Yes, yeah, so it was an the old the
0: Darwin building, which is you know low ceilings and you know smaller appearance <laughs> less things on display uh, but it was a session about kind of naming and taxonomies and how what we call things and how we assign names to things I believe so that was interesting I thought oh, this is a cute little museum and then there had was a job application um, to, to work part-time for them and while I was doing my degree I was fortunate to get the job and worked with a great group of people there you know again um, I had previously worked in much larger institutions Mm -hmm. where, you know, the hundreds of staff and people have been there for decades, and this was quite a small group, you know, five people, very young and dynamic, and cutting their teeth in the museum world, so to speak. So um, it was quite exciting and an entirely different experience altogether, and everybody sort of did everything and was aware of what needed to happen to have this as a public museum and the teaching and everything that we do there. So it it was a great experience.
1: How many of you are working here now?
0: Um, now there's about four or five of us. Um, we had used to have kind of a core team, but um, we've you know, now the different groups of activities that happen in the museum are kind of centralised. Sure. So we have people that come in to do events and people okay. that come in to do front of house. Um, and you know, the, the curator assistant is part of an operations collection management team. So um, really, it's it's kind of just me who's here all the time, guaranteed, <laughs> because everyone else is sort of in and out and all over the place. So, sure. You know, I have been told, you know, you can work elsewhere if you, <laughs> you know, need to get away with it. But I'm, why would you want to? Uh, exactly, and you know, my work are the specimens. So unless the whole museum is going to come with me over to an office somewhere else, I, you know, I don't see it happening. So,
1: so, what ambitions do you have with this collection from here moving on?
0: Well, we have in the last year, since we moved from across the road over and populated this, spa- this space with the specimens, um, we've finally completed the kind of full inventory and location changes and accessioning of everything in this room. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it took six years to do that oh, wow. kind of properly. Um, because a lot of the collection hadn't been accessioned properly, or it might have some funny number, or we might know about it on some list, but it hadn't been kind of done properly. Sure. Um, so that has been completed now for this room, which is a great feat. However, we do have a, two storerooms of wet and dry specimens, which have yet to have that royal treatment. Um, so, I mean, I would like to, you know, as in a curatorial sense, like, document the entire collection. Um, you know, that's you know, beyond just knowing... That sounds knowing. like that's going to take well, decades, yes. potentially? Potentially. I mean, I do have um, a lot of student placements that come in here and, you know, we get them to kind of do aspects of that. Um, it does take time. Um, so beyond just knowing where everything is and what we actually have and identifying things and, you know, new taxonomy, because a lot of these old specimens have got old taxonomies that aren't valid anymore, so mm-hmm. it's updating these kind of records... Then it's, you know, the photography of everything, which would be nice. But, you know, for me, it would be key to kind of figure out, you know, as much as we possibly can. So we do have a lot of archives of things. And again, like piecing together the kind of the books and the registers and knowing when things came in. And, you know, potentially having as much of a story about each specimen as I can. And, you know, in natural history terms, 68,000 specimens isn't very large. So it is... Possible that you know that could be done, um, at least for a lot of the specimens. So that's mm-hmm. kind of my goal, my personal goal.
1: Is there anything hidden away in the archives that you really want to get out and display?
0: Well, I recently we. We had a lot of wax models um, in the collection that were stored in boxes and all over the museum. So a few years ago, I decided to kind of go through and do the wax models. It was a part of a, you know, a location checking in this space, kind of audit of what we had following the move and, you know, kept coming across all these wax models in disparate spots and covers in the museum. So nobody had, they hadn't really been accessioned. We didn't really know what they were in a lot of cases. You know, they're just kind of lumps of wax. Mm-hmm embryological series perhaps of what nobody knew um so i kind of went into that wholeheartedly and um solve the mystery of the waxes (laughs) um so yes so it it turns out you know these are quite important specimens um they're quite rare nowadays Uh They were made generally in the 1850s, 1860s um, to illustrate, you know, scientific work breakthrough in embryological studies. Generally, it was happening in Germany um, at that time, and the models were produced along with the paper to illustrate the work Uh and to be disseminated to universities and museums, so everybody would know the latest and the greatest knowledge. And you know, this is the age just before, like Charles Darwin's um, publication. So it's all about evolution and how we are here and how. Life is formed. So it's this is really cutting-edge science, you know, 150 years ago, and so these models were created to illustrate that. They were often made um, with the modeler and the actual researcher together mm-hmm. by hand, um, and you know, I think they're fabulous. You know, it's it's art and science together. They're beautiful. You know, wax isn't a very permanent material, so the fact that these have remained, you know, and they're mm-hmm. meant for handling as well, which means there's high risk that they're going to be dropped and ruined over the years. So the Grant Museum actually has a really, really important collection of these wax models, and I'll show you where they are in a minute. So, you know, finding out the species, a lot of them are to do with, like, parasitic worms, and, you know, you can imagine the internet searches and the images you are getting back to try to identify you know, flatworm embryos and stuff like this. It was, it was difficult work and sometimes gut churning, um, but, uh, you know, figured out what they are. And, you know, beyond that, like first, you know, the first step is finding out what the specimen is and then where it came from and when it was made Uh and who made it and why it was made. And so there's all this kind of story that develops out of these wax models, particularly. So as a result of that, um, we have most of them on display, the ones that don't are awaiting conservation so uh-huh. eventually to have all of them on display after they've been kind of treated and brought back to life would be amazing um you know in a kind of a more permanent place with interpretation so people can find out more about this brilliant um, yeah so you know I, I do specimen of the week blogs on them and you know i've written and talked about them at conferences so the waxes are my babies
1: <laughs> so there's there's three questions we ask everyone who comes on the podcast. Okay. Um, the first one is, if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world right now, where would it be?
0: kind of interested in going to Antarctica. So I know that's a difficult one to get to, if this, so if this were a wish kind of granted this. Mm-hmm. I, can, I can grant um, that wish. You know, <laughs> somewhere in Antarctica or an Arctic a polar region that's very remote, um again always trying to look for meteorites or collecting something while i'm there so um you know have this fantasy of going up to the arctic or greenland or somewhere like that or antarctica one of the poles and um being able to find meteorites and be out there by myself in this great wilderness would be fabulous
1: amazing um secondly should we colonize the moon
0: should we colonize the moon i think we should just leave the moon alone You know, such a beautiful piece of
1: geology up there. To think of all the meteorites you could find. (laughs) All the
0: meteorites, I I don't know. Um, I think think that it would be practically very difficult to do such a thing. I think there might be better Mm -hmm. options out there uh, for extraterrestrial habitation. Um, Head
1: somewhere else instead of the moon, you mean?
0: Yeah, maybe. I mean, if if we're going to go in that direction, yes. I don't. I don't know if you know. As a species, we could get much out of the moon. I think we there are better options out there. I'd like to go to the moon to check it out and again look for meteorites and uh, you know be there but categorize everything that you can yeah, find up there yeah i think it's a bit too close to earth though so you know living on the moon you'd be looking back down on earth and thinking god it was so much better over there <laughs> what
1: are, <we> <laughs> are we here
0: what are we doing here why did i sign up for this i don't know
1: i looked at a very strange map again going back to maps that i look at on the internet in my spare time it was a map of where the feces of every astronaut who'd been to the moon had Left it really. So all of the Apollo missions had dumped their poo in places, and they've charted where they all are.
0: Oh, that's, that's nice. That's a nice I mean, map.
1: As someone who likes to categorize things and to keep a record of stories. Oh,
0: dear. I've, I've, not, I've not heard about this before, but I, I did kind of wonder at one point what they did with the waste. But um,
1: It's all up there waiting for you.
0: Oh, dear. Okay. <laughs> I'd, I'd rather look at the, foot, the footprints, I think. But, uh, yes, thanks, David. Pass that on to me if I get my ticket.
1: Uh, question three. If you could bring any species back from extinction, what would it be? Um, As you're surrounded by so many wonderful examples of... I mean, how many extinct creatures are there in this room?
0: <laughs> There's a few. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I'm thinking, I, I know what other people would say, oh, the, the thylacine or Tasmanian tiger. I would, you know, and again, I hate to bring dinosaurs into this, but I think it would bring back, like, bring back, like, to exist on the planet as a full species or just bring back just one what, to see how it you, looks like.
1: what would you like to see?
0: I mean I suppose I would like to see, you know, living and live a dinosaur. Just to see how they move, see exactly, you know, put it to put it to bed, like these behavioral questions. You know, I, I know we know a lot about feathers and actually what they sounded like. And I think I think that with a lot of fossil and extinct animals, you know, you can only there's only so much you can figure out about them. So um because there's so much supposed and studied on dinosaurs and all these um, assumptions about how they behaved and what they did and if they were good parents. And, you know, I think the reality of what these animals were actually, how they behaved in Mm -hmm. real life, I think would be very different than what we as, you know, a paleontologist put the evidence together to come up with this story. Mm So, I don't know, maybe something like that.
1: I, I had a fascinating chat with a fossil collector and it he really drummed home the reality of our understanding of that megafauna of the time is one jigsaw piece in a million piece jigsaw so yeah. the research that we have the hypotheses that we've come to are based upon the vaguest of guesswork yeah
0: yeah i mean or even maybe a, you know one of the species of early man you know just to see you know exactly because that is really bitty you know, you know tiny piece of bone and you're designating a whole you know link in you know the human evolution and really you know <laughs> i find that very difficult and you know it is very difficult work um, you know it's but to find out a little bit more you know to bring back you know to answer some of these questions that might mm-hmm. fundamentally change sort of our knowledge
1: well, to be surrounded by old collections as well you start to see where scientific understanding has changed and adapted not only in the taxonomical definition of what a a specimen is but also understanding that the donkey wasn't a donkey it was a a quagga or the, the quagga was particularly rare that all these different things that may have been taken for granted back then or we simply didn't know about back then
0: Yeah, I mean, it's always a process of re-examination. And I think that, um, you know, it might be more straightforward, like, you know, the the name of something has changed or it's been actually re-identified. But, you know, we kind of have this, you know, duty as stewards of the collection to kind of re-examine things, you know, with a modern eye or, or a different eye. Um, than our predecessors and make sense of it in in a new way. So, you know, for example, there's a lot of work going on at the moment about decolonizing museums, decolonizing natural history museums. And so I have... What do you mean by decolonizing? So kind of looking at the role of empire and, you know, the stories that aren't told with these collections. And um, we have an exhibition in the Grant Museum with this focus in mind. So what we're kind of looking at here is, you know how did empire shape this museum what are the role the links of empire here and you know you can look at it in a basic geographic sense you know the types of collections and the types of animals we have you know we've a lot of things from australia india canada don't have much from china
2: mm-hmm. and
0: you know even though it wasn't robert grant himself that was you know out killing animals you know he was a part of this you know, this wider context of empire at the time and these, you know, networks of collectors that were out there because of the colonies and empire and you know, these places that European countries were and you can see this in German museums and mm-hmm. French collections as well. And so it's kind of, you know, looking at a different history or looking at the collection in a different way and kind of examining and you know, why do we actually have these collections? You know, a lot of people, children ask, you know, did you kill it? Sure. Did you personally kill it? No, I didn't personally kill it. Um, someone may have killed it. And again, we don't have that information. We know a lot of things came from the zoo. Um, but, you know, how did those animals get to the zoo? You know, what kind of animals and species did the London Zoo have? Mm-hmm. You know, it was, it was kind of due to the empire. Um, so, you know, it's just different ways of looking at things. And I know, you know, um, trends and what we're interested in you know come and go and um, in natural history museums there's a lot of interactive displays in certain places nowadays we don't have that here um, I think a lot of the appeal of this museum is it kind of looks old you know there's that kind of nostalgia for you mm-hmm. know a Victorian looking museum you know is that a cool thing nowadays you know, taxidermy is quite cool nowadays so like you know these things kind of come around and it's kind of a way of looking at them in a a different way and um, you know I I won't be the last curator here and there will be other voices and opinions that come after mine so you know it's interesting to kind of think about you know how this collection will be interpreted in the future and and kind of how we can do it now in a different way
1: I think that's a fantastic place to end it
0: thank you very much indeed thank you David
1: A huge thanks to Tannis for that fascinating interview and for taking us on what feels like a grand tour of the world's archaeological history. If you'd like to follow Tannis or the Grant Museum on Twitter, their handles are, respectively, at Tannis underscore Davidson and at Grant Museum, all one word. The exhibition on decolonizing an Empire's Collection, which Tanis mentioned towards the end of this episode, is now open and runs until March of next year. So for full information on this exhibition, the museum in general, and my further thoughts on this fortnight's offering, please head across to our website at treesacrowed.fm. In the meantime, I'll leave you with Tanis, for after we'd finished recording the main interview, she proceeded to give me a private tour of the museum's wonderful collection – Here we are with the museum's very own Tasmanian tiger. Uh, What are we looking at now?
0: Um, This is our thylacine collection. So we have a mounted skeleton that belonged to Robert Grant. It's one of the few specimens in the collection that we can definitively say was one of Grant's specimens. We also have the largest thylacine skull anywhere on Earth in our collection. And we have Huxley's dissection. um, And this specimen a few years ago... Um, a team came and sampled the soft tissue.
1: So this is a specimen that's held in a big vat of...
0: Yes. Um, of this is a wet specimen. It is a wet, a fluid specimen, a wet specimen, or a spirit specimen. Um, I like that because it kind of has a mystical quality to it. <laughs> um, so this one was sampled um, with the hope that the genetic material might be intact enough to attempt a cloning of this extinct species. However, it didn't work. So the project was abandoned.
1: The Thiocene is a Tasmanian.
0: It was a marsupial. It's also known as the Tasmanian wolf or oh, the yeah. Tasmanian tiger. It's not related to either wolf or tiger. They had a backward facing pouch. So the, the babies would crawl in through the back. Amazing. It's an odd one. And there's a
1: little bit of footage you can watch. We'll put a link to that on the website so people can see what they were like. Yeah. Looking at the, uh, the preserved specimen in the jar and seeing the texture of the fur and the colour. I mean, some people will find that really quite upsetting, but it's it's
0: amazing. It's quite evocative, especially an animal that's extinct. So the last thylacines um, died in 1936. They were uh, believed to have been responsible for the death of um, sheep in Australia, and so they were hunted. Uh, they actually weren't responsible, and the last one died in Hobart Zoo in 1936. So it was realized that this was a mistake, and they shouldn't have been hunted mm-hmm. um, after the fact. So it was it was too late for the thylacine. But to see yes, the coloration and the stripes of the animal of something that's no longer with us is quite um, evocative.
1: Really upsetting. Yeah. He's hoping that William Dafoe in that film actually does find one.
0: Yeah. Well, what's more upsetting is that <laughs> this is actually not the complete thylacine. It's um, four. Punks of uh-huh. the animal so it was uh taken out of its jar a few years back to kind of re-top up the fluid and um yeah there's sort of like part of a torso and a leg there's no skull on this one um so it's actually this is the best it looks right now okay <laughs> okay
1: and this is in a in a case with with the quagga with some mammoth hair with the tusks that you mentioned earlier
0: We've got some dodo bones as well. Yes, so this is some of our wax model collection. Um, Mainly the ones that we have here at the Grant Museum were made by two German makers. So we have uh, Studio Ziegler and a gentleman called Rudolf Weisker. Uh So uh, they were in two different cities, uh, university towns where various researchers were going on. Um, Again, both to do with embryological series and development of life. Um, Weisker worked with various researchers to do with parasitic worms, and we've got like cysts in pork, and, <laughs> and tapeworms, and proglottids, and kind of not very nice creatures, or how we think about them, and how they can affect humans and animals. Uh-huh. Um, you know, as parasites, don't really get a good rap, but you know, as pieces of art, they're quite beautiful, mm. and they're on these plates um, as well. Um, which are quite nice um this series here was uh they look like haribo (laughs) kind of yeah they're you know the color is quite nice they would be even brighter but um you know some of these series were made with ernest hackle um you know life forms in nature is you know the great artist and scientist so he would have hand modeled these with the zieglers um at the time so really quite extraordinary
1: they're beautiful and they 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 sit really nicely in the collections just to see everything all the way through, from from early fossils to to full skeletons, all the way through to scientists trying to represent the what they have learned.
0: Yes, and I years. mean the Grant Museum is a teaching collection, and yeah. we to ha- these models really illustrate its sort of place in the history of science. Mm-hmm. We also have some Blaschka models, sort of the grade up from um, wax, although a little bit different. Um, so these were made again in about the 1850s. Um, by a Czech jeweler father and son team who wanted to show what invertebrates look like in life. Uh-huh. So invertebrates, when you preserve so are these them, cast no, they're they're glass, they're handmade, oh, wow. hand blown. So the octopus you're, is incredible. Yeah, so preserving them, it would lose its color and its shape. So sure. they wanted to show what they would to look like in life. To find a way to do it without. Yep. So um, you know they're they're absolutely beautiful and. You know, a few years ago, no one really cared too much about the Because mm-hmm. Now, you know, they come up on Christie's for tens of thousands of pounds. A trend is
1: amazing, isn't yeah. it? How fashion shifts across time and what was valuable is no longer and what wasn't is.
0: Yeah. But, I mean, you know, art and nature, I mean, look at how beautiful the, you know, there are pieces of jewelry, really, you know, the Fabergé of the natural history world, really.
1: Yeah. What I mean, part of this podcast is trying to prove that art and nature are... Uh, inseparable.
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Certainly in that, how we understand the natural world and how we understand ourselves.
0: Yeah. And I mean, just even, you know, the texture of the folds of brains of animals, like you know, they're real brains. These, yes. These are all real brains. That's
1: a rabbit. Where's that? A marmoset. A monkey. Another, another monkey.
0: Yeah. There's, there's um, bears. There's. That's pretty. Pigeons. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and there's a there's a human brain to finish it off.
0: And a brain coral. Yeah. Well, there you Again, go. Again, speaking of textures and you know seeing art seeing the forms, commonality of commonality. evolution
1: in separate in. Oh, and there we are. There's the jar yeah. of moles. So there's the, the jar, mentioned of moles. jar of moles.
0: So yes. Do we know
1: how many there are in there?
0: We do. Um, well, kind of. It's either seventeen or eighteen, <laughs> um, depending on who you ask around here. It looks like there's about fifty-five in there, um, but there, it is only seventeen or eighteen. Now, why this is so popular, um, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> As you can see, it's on this shelf with other multiple specimens. Mm-hmm. Um, we get asked, "Why do you have them all in that jar? Why have you guys done that?" You know, in all likelihood, it was a practical solution to storage. And you know, if you were demonstrating back in the dissection days, mm-hmm. the demonstrator could just bring one jar and. Everybody gets a mole, or everybody gets him a all.
1: lizard. Take your mole.
0: Yeah, um, I think the fact that it's a kind of in a, a sweets jar yeah. sort of look um, is a bit creepy, <laughs> <laughs> or endearing if you if you want to put it like that.
1: Oh, I think it's wonderful. I think it's.
0: I think people imagine it in, on a kitchen uh, counter yeah. or something.
1: I'm I'm imagining a man in the 1940s. Like that bit in Charlie yeah. uh, and the Chocolate Factory where he goes into the thing and there's the guy with the white apron and he brings down a big sort of jar of gobstoppers. Yes. Yeah. It's,
0: it's Charlie, it's kinda which like mold that. would you like? Yeah. Know? Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah so that one you know the other ones kind of look more like specimens but it's, it's yeah. the jar it's everything with this one and, and we the actually the little digging
1: claws that he's got they've all yeah, got yeah
0: we, we had a supplier at one point and we sold little fluffy moles <laughs> and <laughs> you know what it was I found like a jar that was exactly like this and I got it from a sweet shop so you know there's something to that like kitcheny, y kind of situation I think going on here with right. that one
1: I'm going to, st- I think it's great that we end with the moles. So thank you again very much, Tanis, for showing me
0: around.
1: You're welcome. So here's the thing. Every time I packed up my kit, Tanis would open yet another display case, tell me yet another fascinating story, and I would have to start rolling all over again. So here is another, and this time genuinely, the final story to end this episode on. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Yeah, so what's this? This used to be your, this is adopted by you. This used to be your favourite
0: specimen? Yeah, well, it's one of my favourites. Um... This one is the rampharenchus. So legend has it here in the ground museum that it was believed to have been a cast and then one day somebody opened the drawer and was rooting around and picked it up and it seemed heavier than it should have been. So yes, it is limestone. So it is real, you know, it's a real specimen. I've had various pterosaur experts come in to look at this one. This would be one of the largest um, rampharenchuses and it is the 139th Named specimen. However, if you just put a pause on that for a moment, um, I've been trying to find out, you know, where this specimen is because there are two casts that I've found of this specimen, um, one in Manchester, the other one in Bologna,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and um, tracing the lineage of, like, you know, how those casts came to be cast from this original presumed specimen at some point in, you know, the early history. Try to find out that I know this one came to the collection in 1891 in the corner there's a preparator's seal mm-hmm. and the preparator is Carl Heitgen and if you look through the records of the German universities which are all online because it's Germany and they, that's how they roll um, you can find out that Carl Heitgen was employed between this period and this period sure. and he was working with um, von Zittel who was Mr. Paleontology back in the day like a really important paleontologist um, they were seeing the best material, you know, out of Solnhofen in Germany, so the archaeopteryx and all these kind of really important finds during that golden age of German paleontology. Mm-hmm. So he would have had access and been one of the per- first people to see all of these things. So why did this come to the Grand Museum? So I suspect I've, you know, been in contact with colleagues in Bavaria, Um, about this specimen. It was figured in 1859, I believe. Um, However, the figure is a little bit different than our fossil here. Mm -hmm. So there's extra coprolite, so that little...
1: That streak up there. That poo. Yeah. Um, There's like
0: a a mouth of an ammonite kind of underneath the tail there. Oh, okay, yeah, I see. And then behind this one, there's another coprolite. It's a bit weird to have these things all together plus... uh, you know, a fabulous fossil. Um, and there's some also some inconsistencies with the cast as well. So this PES here, the little the little leg that kind of goes across the mm. um that doesn't appear on the cast. So what do we have here? I think Karl Heiken, and this is written in English as well, it says Munich, not München. I think that Carl Heiken, he was known for his pterosaur models, I and mean, we you know the Royal College of Surgeons bought a number of his pterosaur models. Mm-hmm. Um, but the collection was lost when the building was bombed during the war during the war, so I can't actually see what those models look like, but he was it was you know the number one entry of the year of new acquisitions, so he was quite famous and known to the English market. I think that he made a cast of the original Wagner specimen. And set it in limestone. So I think this is an early Piltdown fake. Hmm. So because it's a, it's a little bit funny and it's a little bit unexplained and the kind of the plaster. And yes, you know, often um, fossils were kind of treated to bring out the bone a bit more. Sure. But it's kind of... It's a bit too know, well. The, the edges are a bit suspect. Now I have to do some, you know, analysis, and there's like a cat scan, cat scan procedure, a certain analysis to kind of figure out what is real and what's not. But although it's heartbreaking that this potentially is not the 139th Ramphorhynchus, it would be, it would predate the Piltdown scandal. So, you know, that it's would be the quite interesting. It could be, it would be one the of the first, first fakes. Yeah. Um, And, you know, given what I've seen in China, again, like, using, like, real fossils, and they do it in Morocco, like, setting them in real stone, Mm -hmm. or setting, like, fake material in real stone, like, it's, you know, this would be kind of a very early example of that.
1: Going back to what you're saying about finding stories behind it, that's as exciting as a natural historical specimen, I guess.
0: Yeah, and you know, again it's got this whole like chain and it's like it's literally led me around the world. I've you know, visited Bavaria in order to talk to the guys there about <laughs> this specimen. And um, you know, I have the one of my uh, pterosaur colleagues is actually coming in on Monday, so we're gonna look at this again with that kind of Brilliant. that look. So it's it's kind of an ongoing Pet project, and you know, I, I do love this specimen. It, you know, if it's it's fake or real or whatever, it's still, <laughs> you know, I, I will always be its adoptive parent. But you know, I just think it's so interesting. You know, like what motivated like Heitgen like to 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 do, to this. do this. You, know, you ha-
1: awesome, wonderful. Well,
0: I, I I think I hope that it is a fake, kind of. Cause yeah, it's yeah. almost a more interesting story. Yeah, I don't know. Stay tuned. Stay I'll tuned. Let you know.
1: Well, Dick, we'll come back for a second part. <laughs> Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thing being in the Grant Museum, um, you know, it's, it's, it's fun. It's, it's so much fun. I mean, it's interesting. I, I've been trying to leave now for the last fifteen minutes, and every single time we open a new case, there's another story. Whether it's uh, a skeleton that H. G. Wells is stood next to, or the a silky anteater that you think Linnaeus himself was using as a missing link, etc. It's it's bonkers. <laughs> I don't think I'm ever going to get out. There's going to be too many stories. You have to come back. You have to
2: come back. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh.